0: Moses in the Bible is quite a big deal, and it's a good thing to, to have a look at his life and who he is, uh, because he, he filters through a lot of the Bible and the New Testament that comes after him. Um, he's listed as one of the patriarchs, which simply means he's like a spiritual parent to the Christian faith, a key defining figure in Christianity. In fact, not just Christianity, but he holds an equivalent role in Judaism and Islam. So Moses is this key prophetic patriarchal figure to the three great religions of the world. Um, He's referred to over 800 times in the Old Testament. Over 85 times he's referenced in the New Testament. In the New Testament, he is the most referenced Old Testament Person. So, more references to Moses from the Old Testament in the New Testament than any other person. Uh, He's so significant, so defining to faith exploration that when Jesus was asked questions about faith and discovering God, many of his answers simply began with the phrase, Moses said. And then he would say something that Moses said. And as we'll see in the story as it unfolds, he becomes the deliverer of Israel, God's people. Uh, He takes them out of uh, Egypt, where they are in the story we're about to read, into uh, the promised land where they go to. He has this defining encounter himself with God in the the burning bush, or the the bush that's on fire that's not burning. It's a pet peeve of mine, actually. Why is it called the burning bush? Because the whole thing was, the bush didn't burn. Should be called the non burning bush, but anyway, that's another, that's irrelevant. But there you go burning bush. Uh, he, he leads the whole of these people into their new land, and we reckon it's probably something like maybe a million people. He's the bringer of, of the law, so most of the first five books, certainly the books two, three, four, and five of the Old Testament, are referred to as. The law, um, and he is he is the he is like the, begin, the bringer of those things, and the Ten Commandments are Moses' Ten Commandments, and he is attributed with the authorship of the first five books of the Bible. Probably a combination of things he wrote that were gathered together to, in effect, tell the great story of what unfolded. From Moses. And one of the references to the first five books of the Bible is simply to call them the books of Moses. If you say the books of Moses, then you're referring to the first five books of the Bible. The the term and name Moses is significant, and we, we often use it as a metaphor, as a way of describing something about God. Uh, a Moses leader is a, is a leader who delivers people from a terrible situation. So when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in 1865 after freeing the slaves, um, the, a black American, uh, American biographer uh, wrote that they had lost their Moses. Abraham Lincoln was to them like their Moses figure. And Jesus compares himself... To Moses, so for example he says in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Imagine that Jesus might say something of significance about himself by saying, Just like, insert your name, did this, I will do this. That's the significance of who Moses is. John 6, Jesus goes on to say, um, Moses fed you bread, I am the bread of life. Again, using Moses to describe something of his um, identity. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we read that the Israelites, when they're delivered by Moses, were baptised into Moses. So if you if you know the the references to baptism in the Bible, one of the references is the baptism of Moses, which meant the deliverance that he brought to those who passed through the Red Sea. And the examples go on. There's one in Jude that says, even the archangel Michael had a dispute with the devil over Moses' body. Wow. The story we're about to read, I want to kind of locate it time-wise. Uh, and it kind of, uh, I, w- I looked it up on Wikipedia, okay, we're in the late Bronze Age. Yeah, you all know where we are. Okay, this might be about 1,500 years BC. If you remember the story of Joseph, coat, yeah, delivered the, his family, became the Prime Minister um, of Egypt, then this is about 320 years after Joseph. And Joseph took his family to Egypt, he became the Prime Minister of Egypt, he became in charge of the economy, Uh, he took his people from poverty and famine into a place of plenty. So about 320 years later, this is where God's people are, still in Israel, um, and they are the descendants of Joseph and his family. if you read the previous chapter and do do that but let me summarize it to you joseph and his family have grown in number from the sum 70 that we read about in the story about them to possibly as many as a million people they have become an oppressed people and partly that's because the king with whom joseph had favor and therefore his descendants had favour. It's, it's obviously a new king. Many generations of kings and past. And this king does not look upon the descendants of Joseph in the same way. They are no longer highly favoured people. They are an unwanted, unwelcome company of people. It's possible that there were more Israelites um, than the native Egyptians... ...because they were described as being mightier than the Egyptians... And so there was probably a a concern that actually if these people get their acts together, if they rose up collectively against us, then we wouldn't stand a chance because they're stronger than us. There's more of them than there are of us. And it was probably a concern as well, if you read in uh, Exodus 1, that uh, what if they formed an allegiance with one of the enemies of Egypt? Then definitely Egypt would not fare well. These are a dangerous people to the Pharaoh. Of Egypt. Consequently, they are slaves, they are an oppressed underclass uh, of people, they are treated harshly as builders, and they are forced to work uh, long and arduously to make bricks to build cities that become the storehouses and the cities for the people um, of Egypt. Pharaoh wants to deal with this problem, this potential for an overthrow of his people from the people of Israel. And his solution is to instruct the Jewish midwives that they are to kill all boys that are born. Um, you can read it in chapter 1. His instruction is this Midwives, when the woman's on the birthing stool, if a boy comes out, you're to kill him. If it's a girl, Let her live. Uh, So the midwives were given this instruction. Um, They don't put it into effect. They are called back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, can you give an explanation of why you haven't done it? And their explanation, which probably in the ancient world was was rib-tickingly funny, is this. Um, Well, when the Israelites give birth, they're just too quick for us. Um, Egyptian women are slow giving birth but the Israelites are like super quick and by the time we get there pop that baby's out and it's too late for us to interfere at all. So Pharaoh gives... Do you know how was funnier than I thought? There you go. Um, so Pharaoh gives this further instruction. He says, okay, every Hebrew boy must be killed. And so the order is given that every Hebrew boy must be thrown into the Nile River and thereby killed cutting off the the next generation of Hebrew men. In fact, it's very similar to the story in Matthew 2, where Herod orders that every male child under the age of two is is killed. It's, It's sometimes called the slaughter of the innocents. It's part of the Christmas story. In fact, I once was part of a preaching team that did a series on Christmas, and everyone else had picked the shepherds and the angels and all that, and the only passage I was left with was the slaughter of the innocents. It's a great Christmas passage to preach on. All the magic of Christmas. Mass murder of small children. Happy Christmas. Um, And of course, this was... You can probably guess in the ancient world, um, killing children wasn't that uncommon, but normally it would be girls that were killed. This was the reverse of what a culture might have done. They may have seen the sun as a worker as a, head, a future inheritor of the family. So a boy, a boy would be a blessing because they would provide prosperity into your old age. Uh, a girl would be someone who were married a, out of your family. You may have to pay a dowry for her um, to get married. And so it was not uncommon for girl babies to be unwanted and even killed and a boy child to be cherished. In fact, there's a, a letter written about one year before the birth of Christ from a Roman businessman who lived in Egypt, so obviously much later in this story. But he writes to his wife, he says, I'm away, I hope to be with you soon. I hope all is going well with the labour. We hope for a boy. If it's a girl, then leave it outside to die. And that was not an uncommon practice. That wasn't like one person's shocking way of doing it. That was uh, a common thing. And of course, if Pharaoh had his way, then the killing of the boys would have reduced in a generation the the fighting men of Israel and their possibility of rising up. And likely therefore the girls that were left would have married into Egyptian families or would have been taken as kind of additional wives and the the Israelites would have been kind of absorbed away out of existence into the Egyptian culture. Well Paul is now going to come and read our passage and uh, we'll pick up the story from there.
1: Okay, the passage is Exodus 2, verses 1 to 15, on page 39 of the Church Bibles. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking alongside the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. As we begin our
0: introduction to Moses, I want to pick out three things that emerge from the beginning of his story, literally from the beginning of his birth. Um, And the first is this. We see a glimpse of some providence in the life of Moses. There is something special about how God is dealing with him. Pharaoh's given this decree that all the male boys must be killed, and Moses is born. His parents hide him for three months. Um, I'm guessing for a newborn, it's easier to hide the child and pretend that he might be a girl. Like, no offense to parents with newborns here, but um, most newborns don't look amazing. Uh, Girls, like, it's easy to make a mistake. I've learned it's better to, you know, just buy. Uh, inquiry, find out, is it a boy or a girl first? Because often you can't get it right. Like, you haven't got often flowing locks. So she might have no hair, bent nose, a little bit jaundice. You go, oh, what's his name? It's a girl, can't you tell? No. Well, <laughs> probably up to the age of three months, they were going to get away with it. But probably much after that, it was going to be a bit more evident that this was a boy, and there were no boys, because the boys were being killed. And they were, of course, ordered to throw the babies uh, into the Nile. And so they do do put Moses in the Nile. There's almost an element of poetry in the fact that they do that. They're meant to throw the child to its death in the Nile. And instead they place this child in a little basket that's been waterproofed into the Nile. Hebrews 11 writes about this and it says this. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they believed their child was special, and and every parent does believe their child is special, but they perceived something important about preserving particularly the life of Moses. It's hard to know exactly what was going on in their mind. Maybe they were just hoping that if if they could delay the inevitable act... That something might happen, Pharaoh might change his mind, or maybe there might be that uprising and then and then they wouldn't need to kill the boy, or maybe they might be able to leave or or or, or in somehow sort of get away from this awkward thing that they can't have a boy growing up because all the boys must be killed. Um, it, it may be that they are obeying, but almost with an element of rebellion, that perhaps they know, well, we we are abandoning him. He will die, but we refuse to to be the ones that li- literally causes death by throwing him into the water. So we will place him with love into the into the basket, we will set him adrift in the Nile, and then it's kind of you know it's it's kind of a, a, a participation in what was required of them, and yet it's a, a refusal to do it in the way they've been told. They're doing it with kindness and with with love. Or maybe they're abdicating it all to God. They're, they're uh, not willing to engage at all, so they're just separating themselves. They're saying, we'll, we'll leave him, and God will now have to decide what happens. We don't know, but it, it's fascinating to imagine what his parents were thinking. And then we also have in the story, of course, Moses' sister. We don't know how old she is, but we know she works in Pharaoh's palace. Um, and it says that she stands at a distance as the parents hid the child. I was trying to decide this morning: is she, is she cowardly or shrewd? Is she standing at a distance because this is t- too terrifying to be involved in? She feels the awkwardness. She w- she works for Pharaoh, but this is her brother. Or is she shrewd because she hopes for something to happen that might preserve the life? Of Moses, we don't necessarily know. So Miriam works for one of the daughters of Pharaoh, and probably Pharaoh had many daughters. He probably had many wives and concubines. He probably had uh, many daughters, but Miriam works as as a servant and as a helper to one of those. Um, and so, when we have the story of uh, Pharaoh's daughter, she comes out. She's going to have her bath. Which of course is in the Nile, so she's pottering down to the Nile to find a nice spot to have a bath. Her servants were there, and then is it was Miriam involved in, in directing them? Well, she was she like, oh, I know a lovely spot to have a bath, milady? It's a new spot, but you'll absolutely love it. It's over, it's over here. You'll have, you'll be you know. Was, did she contrive to take Pharaoh's daughter? To the place where she knew Moses had been left. And then when, when Pharaoh's daughter gets there, what's, what's going on in her head? Is she kind of a bit dim and she doesn't realise that she's kind of been set up? You're like, oh my word, a baby, who would have known? How could this possibly be here? What's the story? And is she kind of, she's taken in by this scenario? Is she, is she the one that's unaware of what's happening? It says that her heart was moved. Is it possible that actually she completely realises what's happening? Okay, this is what my servant's trying to get me to see. This is an unsolvable problem. But she acts using her place of of some influence, being part of Pharaoh's family. And then she, she issues this command, okay, let's take the baby out of the water. And then Miriam offers... Would you like me to find a wet nurse? Somebody to look after this child? So Pharaoh's daughter orders, yes. Okay, find somebody, whoever you think best, find somebody to look after this child and to bring the child up. However it played out, whichever of those scenarios or even something else it plays out, there, there is a, a sense, again, of providence in the life of Moses. That his life is being spared. And many of Other boys would have been killed, they would have been thrown in the Nile, they would have died. But Moses, by chance or by design from God, is spared. And Moses therefore is now brought up in in the family uh, that that he was born into, they now bring him up. There is no doubt that he was probably told of the story of how he came to be saved. He was being brought up by his actual mother, his actual father, his actual sister. He was probably, what, maybe eight or nine before he entered into Pharaoh's palace. He's he's no doubt aware of who he is, the providence of his story. In fact, in church history, there are other leaders who, by chance or by providence, had miraculous escapes from death. And it often became a defining thing for them. It was something that brought focus and, and passion to their ministry. John Wesley has exactly that example. Um, aged five, there was a fire in their house and everyone in the family escaped except for him who was in his bedroom on the second floor. The stairs are on fire and the way of escaping, yeah, there's no way out and everybody thought, John's going to be killed. He's aged five, he he won't know what to do, he's there, he's going to be burned. The, the men of the village stood on each other's shoulders. They made like a body bridge to get him out of the window and he was spared. And he wrote in his journals and said in his sermons that, that it was the hand of God that had saved him. He believed that. Whether it was chance or whether it was the providential hand of God, he believed it was. And it became a defining and empowering experience for him. He believed that he had special purpose or he was... He was He had added passion for the things that he felt God had called him to do because of that experience. It's almost fantastical to imagine the chance that Moses was adopted and placed back into his own family. Who ever heard of such a thing? But I can tell you this. I know the same thing happened in my family. My grandmother, now dead, um, years ago had to give up a child for adoption nobody will quite say why but I can guess she gave up a child for adoption and the child was adopted and they were, and nothing more was said about where the child went and then a few years later she became a child minder for a child that lived in the same street and so she was, uh, so she was a child minder for that child and then her, her daughters her two daughters uh, also grew up knowing that child, that she child-minded. And then when that child reached the age of 18 and she found out who her mother was, she, she found out that her mother was in fact my grandmother. So she had been brought up by her, her own mother, even though she, th- she thought that person was just the child-minder. So it's an incredible story but even from my, my own family I know an amazing coincidental thing like that happened. Now I know back in the day probably the communities were smaller and so it, it was likely that you might get adopted by someone kind of just round the corner and you might not know. So maybe the, the probability of it is lower. But that, that, that explanation that Moses by the hand of God was preserved back into his family so his own family would bring him up so that he would know who he was. So, providence in the life of Moses. The second thing is that he lives in two amazing worlds. He's a citizen of two very different cultures and worlds. In fact, in some senses, his experience is more like the experience that we might have today in following Jesus in a secular society. Unlike his family, who were totally in the world of their Hebrew fellows and their heritage, they, that, was their, that was their culture. Or Pharaoh's daughter, who had adopted him, and the culture of the palace and of Egypt, the secular culture, and the, the affluent uh, um, family life that would have gone with that. He knew both of those cultures. And probably learnt to see the best of both. As we see in his story that unfolds, probably that unique upbringing forged him into the leader that he became. He knew his culture, he knew the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. Joseph became the Prime Minister and then these descendants. he, He would have known that story. Um, he, would have, he would have known the, the first book of the Bible. Some of that would have been part of their oral tradition and their written tradition. He would have grown up knowing some of that. He also would have been part of Pharaoh's household with all the benefits of the education that I would have brought. That none of his peers would have had that. They'd have just quickly been sent to work, just whatever was practical. All we needed to do was just make bricks to build cities. That's all you need to be taught to do. But as one well as Pharaoh's household, he would have been... Educated, He would have learned. He would have, he would have put his mind to use. Probably he would have had expectation. He would have grown up with an expectation that he's going to do something important. He was a man of great expectations. And I think that's a bit like the worlds in which we straddle. I, I don't know if you think about it as the election comes up, but as the election fever hots up, There's almost this thing, I did an online thing where you have to work out what political party are you, and then you get percentages, etc. And it's like almost a defining thing, like, oh, you're Labour, you're Conservative, you're Liberal, you're one of the other options. And you work out, you know, oh, that's who you are. Um, But those things aren't sufficient enough to define who we are. For each of us, we may say, well, I'm, I'm following Jesus, I'm a Christian, that's part of who I am. But I also have these other parts of my life, my work or my vocation. Maybe that's another part of who I am. And, and these things can have wildly different and separate cultures, just like they did for Moses. And how an interaction between those can vary depending on the context. If you've read any of the history of the communist state, then you'll know the influence of Christians is, as, is of being liberalizers. So in communism, Christians were liberalizers. They were the ones saying, this is an environment of rules. We want to speak for freedom and liberty. In a Western society that's very individualistic, the focus is on the individual person, um, the Christian voice is often more conservative. It's often against the idea of, you know, any freedom goes, and it's more, maybe we should follow the rules. Maybe there are, are some rules that we should live by. Radical following Jesus, radical Christianity, pro- produces in different cultures radical liberalism or maybe radical conservatism. But it's, it's clear that for Moses, without having had those two worldviews, those two cultures, and those two contrasting upbringings into his life, he wouldn't have been forged into the leader that he was. He would have either been just an unimportant Egyptian, aristocrat, living a life of privilege but in charge, or he would have been probably an ineffective Hebrew slave. The third thing is this, that the the events, the, the little bit of story we have of his early life, we can see that it's forging him into the leader that he is and he becomes. And the story goes on, there's more to come. But even these events are forging the beginnings of the leadership that he will bring. We have the story of him killing the um, slave. Uh, killing the uh, slave master. Um, so maybe some anger issues. Um, and as an Egyptian prince, he probably could have got away with that. You know, who the, who the Israelites were and who the Egyptian family were, he probably could have got away with that. Because it's two different categories of people, we know in the ancient world that, n- that noble people could could will the death of somebody else for trivial matters, because there was a difference between that kind of person and this kind of person. There wasn't a sense of an equality of rights. Moses is part of the important family, and these people are less important. Maybe there's no witnesses, so if he's if he's a, if he's the only witness, he can tell the story however he wants. And he's going to be believed because of who he is. So he could have, at that moment, like that defining moment, he could have gone with his Egyptian identity. He could have played it safe. that he could have got away with that, that situation just by saying, hey, I'm an Egyptian, I'm part of this family, and that's all that you need to know about this situation. It goes no further. And the kind of the weight of Pharaoh stands behind him. And protects him. It it was a formative experience for him to decide who he was. Hebrews 11, again talking about Moses, says this By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This was the moment that he refused to be known. This was the defining moment. He could get away scot free. He could continue with a life of security and privilege. He could have a good life. But instead, he refused that because he wanted to live out the faith of following God. And God had a plan. God was at work in Moses' life, preparing him. As this story goes on, we'll find he has other experiences. A long 40 years in the desert and other defining moments. And Romans eight twenty eight says this. We know that in all things God
1: works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose.